0: So on October 3rd, 1997, I received a call at work from my wife telling me that she was taking our only child at the time to the hospital. She had taken her to the doctor's office earlier that day because my daughter was having some weird symptoms. She would be getting up in the middle of the night quite a bit to go to the restroom. She would be on a high, and then she would be on a low. Her energy level would just be up and down, up and down. Uh, A lot of times she was feeling really down, not quite as energetic as she normally would. My wife Karen thought something was up. I, of course, being the man, thought, you know, she could shake it off, and it was nothing. So Karen called me and told me to get to the hospital as soon as I could. Because our daughter Renee had juvenile diabetes. She was three. Three years old. (laughs) Sorry. I knew nothing about this disease, but quickly learned that it had no known cause, it had no known cure, and would be with her the rest of her life. And it did have some serious side effects, and she has a couple of these. Some of which, though, could kill her if they were not taken care of properly. I was devastated. I was devastated. I was angry with God. And I was angry with myself. Why had God done this? What had I done to make God do this? Why did I deserve this? My daughter... We did nothing but pray for a healthy child. My daughter was three years old. Why? Why? Where was God in all of this? I mean, honestly, was He a sadistic God that, wanted, that just wanted me to suffer? Wanted my daughter to suffer? Was He not powerful enough to prevent this from happening? I mean, if He was all-powerful... Right? Then my question is, and was, then God, what are you doing with all of this power? I mean, honestly, we can all relate to this scenario, can't we? You know, I mean, we all have experienced the pain of perhaps a loved one dying prematurely, or uh, children getting sick with some incurable disease, or the sudden loss of a job, our livelihood completely gone. Right? The pain of a nasty divorce or a relationship gone very bad. Um, a car accident that leaves a loved one maimed for the rest of their lives. I mean, two words you never want to hear in the same sentence are wife and cancer. So in May of 2003, Fortune Magazine ran an article about Ted Turner. Ted Turner, you know, CNN and uh, Turner Broadcasting. It was interesting because it provided some good insights into his life and specifically about his spiritual life. Ted Turner is a billionaire agnostic. And agnostic just means that he believes that he doesn't have enough information to make a decision about whether God is real or not. In other words, agnostic is a fancy name for an atheist. (laughs) Because they still do not believe in God. But in this article, it talked about his early life and how Ted Turner was raised in a good Episcopal home, He led Bible studies in his high school, and he was actually planning on becoming a missionary. However, tragedy struck the Turner family. When Ted Turner was 20, his sister contracted a rare form of lupus and suffered terribly, badly. He said he prayed for an hour every day, at least an hour every day, for God to heal his sister but God did not heal his sister and his sister died. Turner said this, she used to run around in pain begging God to let her die. My family broke apart. I thought, how could God let my sister suffer so much? This devastated Turner and his belief in God and he turned away from God. He says in the article, if there is a God, he is not doing a very good job and it seemed like, and it seems like He's kind of just checked out. I mean, we have some things in common with Ted Turner, don't we? Honestly. I wonder why God didn't save his sister. I mean, it's not selfish. It wasn't really a selfish request. God, please save my sister. And he prays about it, and he prays about it. And just think, if God had saved Ted Turner's sister, you know, we think like this. What... I mean, Ted Turner then would have possibly used all of that energy and his creativity and his zeal and drive for the kingdom of God. And yet, God doesn't do anything, it seems. He let Ted Turner's sister die, he didn't cure my daughter. My daughter still has juvenile diabetes, she's 28. And when our dreams shatter and God doesn't answer our prayers, quite frankly, sometimes, at least me, I have the same reaction sometimes as Ted Turner, right? I get angry. I shake my fist in the air and question God, wh- why? Why? When my daughter got diabetes, if you've seen the movie Forrest Gump, I was Captain Dan on the mast of the shrimp boat in the middle of the storm, shaking my fist at God. Come on, God, I dare just answer my question. What are you doing? And I think sometimes we all have that similar reaction, right? We, we just don't understand why. We pray these prayers sometimes, and it's just, Lord, I'm not being selfish. I just want my sister healed. I want my daughter healed. I want my marriage to last. I want, you know, I just want my house to sell so I can move to Holt Summit, right? I mean, we all ask God, why, why, why didn't you, why don't you, why can't you? What are you doing with all of that power? Now to help us answer the question, we're going to get into the book of Ruth this morning. And the book of Ruth is a fantastic small little book, it'll take you 15, 20 minutes to read the whole thing. And I encourage you to read it this week, a couple times if you can. But to help us start to answer the question, let's look at two psalms. One psalm is uh, Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Another is Psalm 135.6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. Everything that takes place in this universe is an expression of obedience to the eternal decrees of the living God. Whether we're talking about the length of a human life, the amount of rain that falls, the orbit of the planets, uh, the appointment of our political leaders, uh, the size of our congregation, or the grades of our children in school. When we assert that God is sovereign, we mean, among other things, that everything that takes place does so according to his divine will including things like a wayward child, a difficult marriage, a stressful job, even an incurable disease in your child. We don't, however, discount human choice, the reality of human choice, human decision, human wickedness, evil that occurs in the world, all of which Every person will be held accountable by God, but we do say that what God decrees, man of his own accord will do in time. But while the sovereignty of God speaks of his predetermined purpose, the providence of God speaks of his working out that predetermined purpose in time, in space, in our lives that we can see. And think about this, the word providence is made up of two Latin words, pro and vide. It's kind of interesting. Literally, it means to see on behalf of or to to foresee. But providence is not really to simply foresee or look ahead. I mean, I think that definition is far too passive. Look at the word again, providence. We get the word provide from those two words. We get provision from those two words. Providence then in its basic form means to supply our needs to supply one's needs, okay? The church has a lot of creeds and confessions, historical creeds and confessions, which are good. I found this in the Heidelberg Catechism, and it has a great definition for us, that one of the questions asked this, what do you mean by the providence of God? Very simple, direct question, probably, you know, if we talk about this, we, we, we may get this question, what do you mean by the providence of God? The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things come not by chance." Not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. People will say, oh man, good luck. Oh, I'm glad that just happened. Not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. This is a great definition because it shows just how much God governs everything, right? Down to the smallest detail. The herbs and grass. But now, let me give you a biblical example. We got a friend flying around here kind of interesting we uh let me give you a biblical example genesis 22 right we kind of know the story right god says abraham i've given you this son i want you to take this son i want you to go up to the mountain and i want you to sacrifice him for me and abraham's like well okay you know you gave me the son i guess i'm gonna have to obey right so genesis 22 now let's pick up at verse 6 and abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on isaac his son and he took in his hand the fire and the, and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Now notice in, 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 this, in a couple of these verses, Abraham responds to Isaac's question by stating that God will provide the sacrifice. That word in Hebrew, provide, is Yairah. Sometimes we say Jehovah Jireh, right, which means God the provider. But Yireh, Jireh, simply is the verb that means to see, to see. So in other words, God will see the lamb is what the verse literally says, God will see the lamb. And later in scriptures, of course, God stops Abraham, killing of his son, like right at the last minute, Right? And God does provide a sacrifice to honor God at this place. Abraham names the location in verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Literally, he calls the place, God will see. God will see. Now that seems a little strange, doesn't it? But think about this. When somebody asks me to do something, what do I say sometimes? Yep, I'll see to it. I'll see to it. I'll see that that gets done. I'll see to it. So in other words, we make sure we'll do it, or we make sure it gets done. So look at verses 8 and 14 like this. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will see to it. The Lord will see to it. Now, that to me is a very simple definition of providence. I'm a simple person, right? I need a simple definition. God sees to it. God sees to it. So the little story of Ruth is a story about God's providence. Now, the outworking of his sovereign plan in the lives of everyday people, everyday people. But even more to the point this morning, and I love the worship set that Brooks brought to us this morning, because this little section of Ruth that we're starting out this morning uh, is a story that details the dark shadows of providence what i call the dark shadows of providence the fact that at its very outset i mean if you read the first 5 verses in ruth you're like oh my word <laughs> you know it's like one thing after another just bam 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 and it's brutal it's just honest life happens sometimes and it's interesting because so one of my favorite movies i'm just going to say this one of my favorite movies is saving private ryan All right, I'm a West Pointer combat veteran. Saving Private Ryan, man, that's a great movie. The first 30 minutes of Saving Private Ryan is probably some of the most brutal yet most accurate depictions of what happened on Omaha Beach on June 6, 1944. And if you can sit through the first 30 minutes of Saving Private Ryan, you can make it through the rest of the movie. These first verses of Ruth are kind of the same thing. When you make it through the first five verses of Ruth, then you can see through the rest of the book how God's providence takes these, these dark tragedies and weaves them not only into good for Ruth, but also good for mankind. I mean, the end of Saving Private Ryan, to me, is a tearjerker. You know, it's just, I, every time, I've seen the movie a hundred times, I cry every time. And I'm not a crier, I'm just not sometimes, you know, but, but the book of Ruth is the same way, but in, it's, it's, it is kind of the same way, but it's a different way. The book starts out in darkness, and then it ends in a marvelous light, okay? So with that in mind, let's read our text this morning. I'm going to read the first five verses of, of, of Ruth this morning. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the, county, uh, the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. That's twice he said that, so that's a key point. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The the name of one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Molin and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So in a matter of a few short verses, the dark shadows of Providence relentlessly assault this woman named Naomi. Within the setting of the darkness of Providence, Ruth is a beautiful love story centered around some of these main characters, okay? But it's also a story of love and redemption with God as the main character. So there are many other themes that run through the book of Ruth that, you know, we could touch on and we, and we will touch on as we go along. Themes such as the faith of Ruth. We'll see that actually next week. The contrasting attitudes throughout the book between Ruth on one hand and Naomi on the other hand. And the purity and chastity of the relationship between Ruth and Boaz that we'll see in uh, chapter, chapter two and three. Ultimately, however, Ruth is an enduring love story of how God takes care of his people through grace and providence, even in the darkest of times. Okay, despite the bad decisions, you can say, made by Naomi's husband and their sons, and even to some extent, maybe Naomi herself, you know, God weaves all of these things into his sovereign plan for the lives, for their lives, and also when we get to the very end, the lives of literally the lives of all humanity. So the book of Ruth begins with this phrase that simply lays out the setting of Ruth. It takes place in the days when the judges ruled. Now, sometimes if you're like me, you're like, man, i got to skip over the introduction, and I want to get to the meat, right? You're reading one of Paul's letters, and you go, oh, Paul says, I, Paul, servant of God, grace be with you, blah, blah, blah. And sometimes you skip over that because, man, I want to get into the meat. Don't skip over any verse, especially the beginning. Because in this case, the days when the judges ruled is chock full of meaning. It tells you what the times were like. So it takes place in the judges, the area, the, the, uh, the time of judges, the book of judges, between Joshua, the death of Joshua and the, the, uh, the anointing of King Saul, the coronation of King Saul. They were very dark. Spiritually, filled with horrible sin, corruption, apostasy, death, you name it. You can look at the book of Judges, which immediately comes before Ruth. And, you know, in the days, the very last verse of Judges, which then leads right into the book of Ruth, it said, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Think about that. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, there may have been exceptions. Gideon, you know, some others. Deborah is in there. The people of Israel at this time were consumed with sin, worldliness, drunkenness, greed, sexual immorality, idolatry. It was dangerous because it was a time of lawlessness and perversion as well. And single women, widows, children... They were targets for exploitation. So you get the picture, right? This was not really a good time to be alive. There were hazards. Okay, but let me just mention very quickly two points to remember about a time when everyone did what is right in their own eyes. Right? This applies not only to this time, it applies to today as well. Because we live in a time when... Oh, what's good for me is not good for you, and what's good for you is not for me, and I'm just going to do what's right in my eyes, you can do what's right in your eyes, and we'll all live happily ever after, right? Not quite. So one point revolves around relativism, and one point revolves around unity, very quickly. So during this time when Ruth and Naomi and Elimelech were alive, um, there is no spiritual focus, and relativism is dominant. Now, what is relativism? My truth is not your truth. What you believe is true may not be right for me. You know, so I'm going to live my way, you live your way, and we'll just all be happy. Right? That that You can't live that way because it breaks down very, very quickly. In fact, there's really no one truth, and it's different for all of us. And I was even going through some, uh, and this applies today because I was going through, I had to do some... Uh, I'm a manager at my job, so I had to do some some uh, diversity and equity training online, so I was going through this line, and this phrase came out several times. Oh, that may be your truth, but that may not be my truth, and so we just need to let people live and let live, right? So this whole training was permeated with a relativistic mindset. What's good for you may not be good for me. You know, there's no one standard, but friends, let me tell you something, God's Word, however, is the standard of truth for all creation for all time. And then second, in Ruth's time, in our time, doing what what is right in our own eyes leads to a complete breakdown in unity. I mean, think about it. Extreme individualism takes center stage and everybody does their own thing. If I do my own thing, you do your own thing. This person does their own thing, this person does their own thing. How do we even come together? There is no unity, right? There is no unity in the nation or in the people of God. So that's what it was like. So there was also a famine in the land. The famine in the land of Bethlehem of Judah. So famine sometimes in the Old Testament is a sign of God withholding his blessing from people as a punishment for their sins and maybe to bring them back in repentance to worship God. So it's interesting because the Bible says there's a famine in the land of Judah. But yet, 50 miles away, apparently, there was food in Moab because Elimelech said, oh, well, there's no food over here, there's food over here, maybe I need to go over here and live. What's ironic is that the famine also included Bethlehem. Bethlehem literally means in Hebrew, house of bread. So it's ironic that there was a famine in the house of bread. <laughs> and Judah means praise. I mean, that's a wonderful place to live, right? The house of bread and praise. But not at this time. So the story of Ruth begins and ends there. And if you remember, in the very beginning, they mentioned twice that this guy, Elimelech was from Bethlehem in the house of Judah. There's only two individuals mentioned in the entire Bible who are from Bethlehem. One is Elimelech. Who's the other one? Jesus Christ, our Savior, was from Bethlehem. So think about names in the Bible, right? Think about names. Uh, Because the famine, a a man named Elimelech took his family to sojourn in Moab. Now, we don't use that term much, sojourn, but that implies a temporary state of living. I'm just going to go over here for a little bit. I'm going to ride this thing out, and then I'll come back to the promised land. But while the famine was probably God's judgment on Israel, I mean, think about this. Who? Who can blame Elimelech, right, for trying to run from God's judgment, find a better place for his family? I mean, if there was a famine in one place, I don't think any of us would be like, man, I am, I'm going to try to ride this out. We'd be like, there's food over here 50 miles away. I'm going. I'm taking my family over there. We'll eat for a little bit. We'll come back, right? I don't think we can blame Elimelech for doing that kind of thing. That's, quite frankly, that's what men do. <laughs> I would. You know, we have a, bo- a burden to support our families. We make these practical, pragmatic decisions. They may seem to, they look like maybe the right thing to do at the time, but then they turn out just the opposite in the long run. So rather than dealing with the underlying spiritual causes that impact our life, sometimes maybe we try to run from them. And the book, is, the book of Ruth is again filled with more irony. Elimelech in Hebrew literally means God is my king. But unfortunately, in these first five verses of Ruth, Elimelech trusts himself to take care of his family rather than living as his own name suggests and trusting God. God is my king to take care and be his provider. But nonetheless, we will see a little bit later that God uses our poor judgments to work his divine plan and ultimately uses this little side trip to Moab, to further his plans for the salvation not only of Ruth and Naomi and their family, but for the salvation of people all over the world from this time until Christ returns. So Elimelech, Naomi, Mahlon, and Killian, they all go to Moab to stay for a while. Okay, and I just want to mention here briefly, this would be like for a Jew going to Moab to hang out for a few years till the famine is over would be today like a Jew going to Iran to hang out for a little bit until a famine blew over, right? Moab was a hostile country to the Jews. Um, you know, and Moab actually started in Genesis 19 when... Uh, Lot's two daughters got him drunk. They laid with him and got pregnant. Both of them did. And in one of the daughters, the son that was born was named Moab. So Moab doesn't even have a good lineage. I mean, it started in sin, right? Um, so they've all, they were always an enemy to, to the Jews. Uh, they did not worship God. They worshiped a God called Chemosh who was a child sacrificing God, um, but they, had, they, they must have had food because the said, you know what, the land is far away from God, it's away from familiar surroundings, away from the promised land, it's hostile and evil, but they've got food, so maybe I'm going to trust myself, I'm just going to go over here for a little bit, hang out until the thing blows over. So Elimelech moves his family to Moab, hopefully to improve their chances of survival. Yet in another example of bitter irony, Elimelech dies. So while he moves to Moab to increase the chances of the family's survival, he himself dies. He can't even guarantee his own survival. So what was initially intended to be a temporary living arrangement then turned to a more permanent move. So Elimelech's gone. Naomi is now left with her two sons, and perhaps they decide, well, maybe Moab's not, the, not a bad place after all. Maybe perhaps the famine's lasting longer in Judah than they expected, right? And so they decide to get married. Malin and Killian decide to get married. We've met a couple of nice girls over here in Moab. I think, you know, the famine's lasting a while. This place ain't half bad. So we're just going to get married and we're going to settle down here. So they become like the world around them. What happens is, you know, it doesn't say, and maybe I'm speculating a little too much here, but, you know, perhaps they got a little comfortable in Moab. Perhaps they, you know, met some nice people. Perhaps, you know, these two ladies were nice enough and, they get married and worldliness and maybe Moabite traditions and maybe come into their home a little bit. They started to fit in and maybe we'll just settle down. Now, I, I do want to say this. Let, let's remember this, though. Even though the author had plenty of opportunities to blame Elimelech and his family for making poor decisions and even leaving the land of his fathers and becoming worldly, nowhere does the author of Ruth blame Elimelech and Naomi and Malam and Killian for their actions. Nowhere, nowhere does he say, you know, they moved and God struck down Elimelech because he moved away from the promised land. Nowhere does it say this, okay? We don't know why tragedy struck Naomi and her family other than God's providence, and we should refrain, actually, from assuming that God was displeased with them or that they were being punished for something they did, right? Job's comforters, Job's comforters told Job, oh, all this stuff is happening to you. You need to repent of whatever sin you got hidden in your life so that this stuff will go away. But Job rebuked them. So sometimes God's reasons for his actions are known only to him. And reasons for what God does may, may, be, made no, may be made known later to us Or, we may not even know this side of heaven, why God does certain things in our life. So, keep that in mind. So, okay, tragedy strikes again. So, Naomi's family moved to to Moab. Elimelech dies. They settle down. Sons take Moabite wives. They live there ten years, according to the scriptures, and yet they have no children they're married 10 years, they have no children. The wives were barren. And children at this time were critical, and especially sons were critical to carry on the family name and the land and the blessing and to take care of the family. And then what's worse is both sons die without children. And it's kind of hard for us here in the 21st century to think about this but this was a disaster. This was a disaster for Naomi and their two daughters and her two daughters-in-law. I mean, they came to Moab for a better chance of survival, a better life than Bethlehem. But what happens? Tragedy, disaster strikes. Elimelech dies, the two sons die. Naomi is left by herself with the two daughters-in-law. I mean, they have no hope. (laughs) They have a bleak future, right? And it's hard for us to think about this because, oh, my husband dies. He had a nice 401K plan. He had $500,000 worth of life insurance. Honestly, I'm glad, man. I'm set for life now, you know. But that's that's not what happens in Ruth's time. When the man dies and the two sons die, Naomi and their daughters-in-law have nothing. They have nothing. In fact, they have worse. They have less than nothing because now there are three ladies who are just ripe for exploitation or criminal activity or abuse. So completely different than 21st century America. Right? I mean, they were in dire straits. They were in a world of hurt. So they were helpless. They couldn't take care of themselves. You know, women didn't work at the time. They had no skills. So now, hmm, what were they to do? I mean, this is bleak. This is bleak. But now, can't we sometimes, though, relate to Naomi and the daughters-in-law? I mean, believe it or not, people throughout history have had the same feelings, thoughts, and reactions, you know, that that we have sometimes when we just get hit with tragedy, right? And we can look at the book of Ruth and and the central character, Naomi. The problem is we live in a fallen world, marred, corrupted by sin. Sin, corruption, and death. We ourselves are fallen creatures, separated from God because of sin and rebellion. Basically, we have an inability to really love God before everything else. We strive to create a world that we're in control of. I want to do this, I'm, I'm in control of my world, my family, my situation. I don't like surprises, I don't want any surprises. Famine over here, no, I've got to move to Moab because, man, I've got to take care of my family. Which seems like the right thing to do. We make our plans like a Limelech. we dream our dreams thinking we can plan out our futures and control our destinies, when in fact, we can plan and dream But there's no guarantee anything will happen as we plan our dream. Now, I'm sorry. People come to church. I want to be uplifted during church. This is going to be a little bit now. I'm just giving you some things to think about. I'm going to wrap it up, and it will be inspiring. But I have to hammer this home because life is real. Life is real, and daughters get incurable diseases. Right? Marriages sometimes crumble. People die. And if we don't face that reality, then it's going to be extremely hard for us when that reality strikes. And this is the fall. When Adam and Eve used their God-given privilege of moral choice to disobey God, they sinned, it created shockwaves of corruption throughout all of creation and the human race. And Naomi and her daughters-in-law bear witness to those consequences, and they undergo a type of fall in their own little world themselves, right? And flees God's judgment for a better life, at least a better life in his mind, makes some decisions, and the consequences are beyond his reach, beyond his imagination. Naomi's left in Moab with no husband, no sons, two widowed daughters-in-law, right? Death is a punishment for sin, as indicated in Genesis and in, in Romans. But I'm not saying Elimelech and their sons die because of, because of judgment. Oh, you move. You're not supposed to move. God says, bam, you're done. That's not what I'm saying at all. That is not what I'm saying at all. But I do believe that the actions and consequences of Elimelech then represent sort of a picture in the book of Ruth similar to the disobedience of Adam and Eve towards God, right? It's called a type. It's a comparison. And I can also see, though, that the book of Ruth is a type of plan for salvation. Because you have to have the bad news before you can have the good news. And the first five verses in Ruth, sin causes all kinds of things to happen, and they are in need of redemption. You have three three ladies here that can't help themselves. They have nothing. They have zero. They cannot help themselves. They need help. They need redemption from some, someone outside of them. And then as we go through the book of Ruth, we're going to see other things. And there is a, a, I kind of spilled the beans on what I'm going to be talking about the next several weeks. But if you flip over the teaching notes in your handout this morning, it's got the whole outline of what uh, the book of Ruth is going to be about. So we're going to see, we see the fall this morning. We're going to see, uh, we're going to see depravity. We're going to see faith. We're going to see blessing, we're going to see redemption, and then we're going to see consummation. So the book of Ruth is really a small view of the entire history of the salvation of the world. So think about that as we read through the book of Ruth. We're going to see it all just in this little book, right? The pain of death is experienced by both Jews, Naomi, and Ruth is a Gentile. Right, the, the situation creates uh, the the death of Elimelech and the sons create a situation where Ruth and Naomi cannot help themselves. They cannot help themselves. They're dependent on somebody else. Boaz, as we will see later, secures their future in his own work. And then we see God moving through all of these situations that are occurring in the book of Ruth to the final, the very end, when you can see, wow the serious consequences of this and it goes from being bleak to being incredibly an incredible blessing not only for Ruth but for the world so we have to remember throughout all of this that God's dreams are bigger than our dreams and God's plans are bigger than our plans and that statement I mean I'm going to be honest with you if somebody would have said that when I was going through this whole thing with my daughter I would have went you got to be kidding me <laughs> that's all you got sometimes it may seem trite when you say things like that but it's true it's true nonetheless and it can serve as a great encouragement and i say that because god is not only sovereign over all things and events but he's also a loving god so while the deaths of naomi's family were not necessarily caused by god he certainly in his sovereign plan through his providence decreed them to occur however He did not allow them to occur in a vacuum. He loves his people. God loves his people. And as we will see later, God has a plan for Ruth and Naomi that is far bigger and far greater and much more of a blessing than they can ever even imagine. So while Elimelech moves his family to Moab because he wants a better life, God in his providence has a plan that is an even better life, not just for him themselves, but for all of mankind, bigger than any of these characters could ever imagine. So in the end, the book of Ruth is a story that will show us that God's dark shadows of providence are ultimately an expression of his wisdom and goodness. Ultimately, his purpose is to save his people from their sins. And in the sufferings of Naomi, in these first five verses, to the faith of Ruth that we will see next week, my prayer is that we will all see, we will all see the signature hand of God in all of our lives, in our own lives, in our suffering, in our blessing And we see in all of these things throughout our whole lives the goodness of the providence of God.